it's New it's Year's Day. It's New Year's Day. It is 2021. Yep. As well, that's when we're recording. An hour and three minutes ago. Mm. Um, but this is coming out the week after, so I'm hoping that you guys have enjoyed the week of your New Year so far. Yeah. Hope it's starting off strong and not awful. Yeah, like what we're about to talk about. <laughs> this isn't happening around New Year's, but these are awful things we're about to talk about. I'm excited for yours. I'm excited for yours. How was your week? My week was good. I worked, and then I've been hanging out with you on my days off, and we cut my hair yeah. off. Ish. Half of it. We cut off, off half my hair. It's great. I love it. It looks awesome. Thanks. Okay. Tell me a story. Um. So we are talking about, or at least I'm talking about, we're both talking about this, Um. Family Annihilators Part 2. Part de, un de toi. Um, we just watched Hamilton. Hey. What do we talk about? Yeah. They count to ten in French. Un, de toi, quatre, cinq, six, huit, neuf, dix. I don't know anything in French. Yeah, there you go. You just learned ten, how to say, talk to, talk to ten. How to say to ten. How to say ten <laughs> to one. Un, de toi, quatre, cinq, six, huit, neuf. I, I don't no, know. No, I, su- I skipped one. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, I can count to ten in English. That's all I can really... That's as far as anything goes for me. That's all you need. Um, speaking of French, that's funny that we're counting to ten in French. Um, my story is from France. Love it. Yeah, so Family Annihilator, French story. So I want to just disclaim, because I'm going to try not to say this as much in, <laughs> when I'm recording, because I do it all the time apologizing for mispronouncing things. I'm just going to do it all right off on the bat. And I'm also going to say that I am going to pronounce their names how they did in French because I just want to be as respectful to them as possible since, you know, it's five million annihilators, somebody dies. I'm going to be respectful to them. And if that's how they wanted their names pronounced, if that was what that, that, that's how it was, I know if I died, I would want somebody to pronounce my name how my name is pronounced. So... I'm just trying to be respectful. And going back to the Amar Deep episode where I said, like, it's either Amar Deep or Amar, Amar Jeet. Um, I just, I know I said that I was going to do Amar Deep because it's one, the one that I found the most sources of and two, and it's easier for me to say. Amar Jeet isn't that difficult for me to say, so I don't know why I said that. So I feel really bad <laughs> for saying that. No. I'm going to try my hardest to pronounce things correctly. So... That's all I'm going to say. We're cool. 10 minutes in, and I've apologized. Great. Yep. Hope that's the only one. I hope so, too. I'm probably going to cut most of it out. Thank you. You're welcome. I love you. <laughs> so, Family Annihilators, we are going to be talking about the Dupont de Lagunes family. Um, we are going to start with Xavier. He was born in January 6th, 1961, in Versailles, France. His full name is Xavier Pierre-Marie Dupont de Lagunes. Um... He is the son of Bernard Hubert de Pont de Logones and Genevieve Therese Mater. That was the end of her name. <laughs> um, Genevieve was born January 9th, 1961. Bernard Hubert was, um, he lived from November 7th, 1931 to January 20th, 2011. He, um, Bernard Hubert was an engineer. He was also a count and a patriarch of the Dupont de Logones family. So they were... <laughs> Nobles. He was an engineer. Oh, also a count. Yeah, a count. Well, I mean, like, I guess, like, royal families that aren't, like, the royal family still have to make a living. 
Makes sense, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I've never thought about that before. Yeah. I haven't either, but... The De Pont de Lagones, um, like I just said, is an old French aristocratic family from Annonay, which is the Verevis region of southeast France. Um, ancestors include Edouard de Pont de Lagones, which he lived in 1797 to 1877, and he was married to Sophie de Letherne. Um, Sophie was the sister of the poet Alphonse de Lamartine, whose youngest son was Charles Dupont de Logones, who was the Bishop of Rodez. So okay. a lot of big family people there. Um, Rodez, for anybody who's wondering, is a small city and commune in the south of France, and it's about 150 kilometers northeast of Toulouse. Cool. Yeah. Um, so huge family with a large history. Um, Xavier is the father of a five-piece family living well technically six-piece including him um they lived in the western suburbs of Nantes, france france um i'm trying to say france the french accent i don't think that's... Nantes, france <laughs> sounds weird <laughs> trying real hard trying so hard uh, eventually halfway through this i think i'm just gonna start speaking fluent french so. sure sorry guys. that's how it works yeah um, Xavier's professional activities were very vague, but he was just mostly, mostly described as a salesman. Um, but there was, like, some weird sketchy business stuff that I found on my research escapades. He had one business based in Pornic called Celrif. Uh, it had very secretive and ambiguous defined purpose. Um, in the company's 2006 accounts, it was accessible through a public website, um, which was shown only the bare minimum information and the last data pertaining to the company was filed with the french register of commerce on 20 the, on the 24th of february in 2004 and um as the manager of Celrif, xavier hired six salespeople in 2003 and released them shortly afterwards so it was kind of like he made this business as like a money laundering kind of thing that's what it seems like if he like hired people for just a very short amount of time and then the business was just gone so it was like he created this business to try to cover it up i just think of breaking bad you know what i mean yep um his wife was agnes dupont de lagones um maiden name was hodinger um she was born november 9th 1962 in some French suburbs I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Um, and Agnès was an assistant at the Catholic school in Nantes. Um, I said that wrong. Agnès was an assistant at the Catholic school in Nantes. Her duties involved teaching um, catechism? Catechism. Catechism. Thank you. Catechism, obviously you know what it is, but I didn't. So it's a summary f- or exposition of doctrine and serves as learning introduction to sacraments traditionally teached um, to children and adult convert converting over so it's like beginners catholic anyways um do you want to do you want to re say that sentence without the word teached <laughs> do you mean taught no <laughs> okay teach just that's okay 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 she okay so Agnes was described to be very religious and she would attend mass every Sunday with her children if they're Catholic I don't think they would attend mass on Sundays would they Sunday mass okay never mind 
Um, people described her to be kind but strict with her family. Um, makes sense, but she was a mom, a Catholic mom. Hmm. Xavier and Agnes had four children, Arthur, who was born July 9th, 1990, Thomas, who was born August 28th, 1992, Anne, who was born August 2nd, 1994, and Benoit, who was born May 29th, 1997. Um, Arthur was the oldest. His full name is Arthur Nicholas Dupont de Lagones. Um, I think that he, all the other kids... Their full name is just Tomas de Lagones, on de Lagones. Like, he's the only one that has a middle name. Okay. But I really think that it was a second last name because he, um, Xavier wasn't his birth father. His Uh-oh. birth father, I think, had the surname of Nicholas. So I think they just kind of put Dupont de Lagones at the end. Sure. Um, um, but when Xavier and Agnes married in 1992, Xavier took... Arthur in as his own, basically to be like, hey, I don't care. Call me dad. Yeah, call me dad. You're two years old and I'm going to raise you because your father, I think, was uh, not in the picture. Arthur had a baccalaureate, which in Europe, I think it's a little bit different because when I looked at it, it's a celebration of graduating senior class from college, high school, or eighth grade. Cool. So not just college is what we would consider it to be. Um, and he had that in science, industrial technology, and sustain- sustainable development by the age of 20. So very smart we kid. We kind of do that, too. Do though. we? Yeah. You, do you remember going to baccalaureate for, your, like, high school graduation? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I bet you had one because it was, like, a ceremony you had before you graduated at night. Ours was, like, in the gym, whatever, and then... Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Continue. Anyways, um, Artur was studying for um, a technical diploma in IT um, at a private college in Saint Laurent. Okay, Saint Laurent sur I hope I'm saying that right. I know I'm saying Saint Laurent correctly because East Saint Laurent. Anyways, um, it was just an hour's drive from Nanta, so pretty close. So he could come home whenever he wanted to. Basically, he also was a waiter at a pizzeria there in Nanta. Um, Thomas, he also had a baccalaureate in literature and he was only 17. He's described as an ordinary boy who was often accompanied by his family to drop him off and pick him up. Um, so I think he just kind of, also the documentary that I watched, he was a very, he was just a very shy boy, but he really loved music. Um, Anne was in 11th grade um, following her academic curriculum in science. She was described as being approachable, considerate, and the girl who who also shared her mother's religious beliefs. Um, She was just also a typical 16-year-old girl who was obsessed with, like, calling her friends and being online and chatting with them. Um, She also modeled for magazines, so she was a very beautiful girl as a 16-year-old. Benoit was the youngest. He was only 13. He... um, was an altar boy at their altar boy. I think that's what it's called. I didn't put it in here. I should have. But he did that at their Catholic church. And they also had two little chocolate Labradors. I don't know their names, though. Hmm. They're probably something I couldn't pronounce. Um, (laughs) So we're going to talk about when things start to get a little weird 
for the family. Friday, April 1st, 2011, Arthur leaves college and doesn't turn up at the pizzeria to pick up his monthly wages. And his boss thought that this was very weird because he always picked up his paychecks on the very first of the month. Like, Mm. was very consistent with that. So the fact that he wasn't was just kind of like weird um on monday april 4th on and benoit don't turn up at their school due to quote illness um personally i believe that the illness means that someone either anya nope that's how you say it either on yes or xavier called into the school for them to just be like hey my kids are sick yeah um like our parents did for us um, on and Benoit's friends became concerned because they weren't able to contact, like, by texting them or anything like that. And then, um, their friends also remember rumors at that time that were being circulated that the family was going to leave for Australia because Xavier had been given a job transfer, but the, their friends didn't believe this because not, neither on or Benoit had, like, talked about it. Sure. And they were like, that's something that they would have talked about. Yeah. Like, you don't not talk about moving to France. Or yeah. <laughs> talk about moving to where you live. Right. Australia. Um, Tuesday, April 5th, a bailiff comes to the home to collect a debt of 20,000 euros, but no one answers the door, and that's a kind of a pretty large debt. Yeah. Um, Wednesday, April 6th, our 6th, Arthur's girlfriend hasn't heard from him and is concerned. She goes to the family home and knocks on the door. Um, no one answers the door, but she remembers that there was, like, a light on on the first floor. So she's – it seemed like somebody was home, but then she also thought it was weird because the dogs didn't bark. Sure. Yeah. Like, oh, no. anyone who has a dog, unless your dog is, like, the chillest, most awesome bro in the world, Not your ours. dogs are going to bark. Yeah. Um. So that's super weird. So also, based off of my research, neighbors, after they were being interviewed after – what happens, they recalled hearing the dogs howl for, like, two consecutive nights, and it just stopped. Oh. I know. So that's really sad. Oh, babies. I know. Mm. If our dogs just howl, I really hope one of our neighbors mm. won't wait until, like, something crazy happens to be like, oh, yeah, that's right. There was something suspicious, you know? Yeah. But anyways, um, Monday, April 11th, the school receives a letter from Xavier stating the kids will be pulled out of school because the family is moving to Australia uh, due to, quote, urgent professional changes. And they also received a final payment for schooling. Um, The same day, the Catholic school where Agnes works uh, receives a resignation letter signed by her, which stated the same reason for leaving. The headmaster at the school attempts to call Agnes to verify the information, but is unable to reach her. Um, Previous to this letter, but at an unknown time or date, I couldn't find one, the school was also informed that Agnes was suffering from gastrointestinal gastroenteritis and would be gone for an extended period of time sounds awful gastro anything sounds awful i know right i want my belly to be good all yeah. the time i i've taken a lot of 911 calls of people like having problems with things like that and mm. it's like i feel so bad and i don't know what to say it's so uncomfortable yeah it's so sad um the neighbors uh, that same day also become concerned and notice that the shutters have been closed for more than a week, which is very unusual because they were never closed. Like, even when they went on vacation, the shutters were always open. Um, so, And also, Agnes's car was parked outside on the street this whole time. So, like, she hadn't left to even go do anything. 
I always think about, like, why, if you're going to do something, like, I know happens in this, like, why would you make such drastic changes like that that are going to draw attention? I don't know. (laughs) But it obviously didn't draw that much attention. Not enough. Not enough for anyone. But, I mean, you know what? I stand corrected. It did, but we will get to that in a second. Um, Also on the 11th, uh, this is when neighbors also noticed a note on the um, Dupont de Lagunas' mailbox that said, quote, please return all correspondence to sender. Thank you. End quote. Um, That's just weird. As a mailman, I would call the police. That's why. Unless they did that often, but there was nothing in there that my research that could verify if they did that often. Hmm. The neighbors saw that and they were like, that's weird. That's um, suspicious. That's weird. So Wednesday, April 13th, the neighbor... He, this is where I'm going to apologize because I am going to fuck up a couple of names. But it's just because they didn't pronounce the names. So I don't have anything to go by. I'm not French. I'm going to try to just pronounce it. So there's going to be some names that if I pronounce wrong... I didn't have anything to go off of. The documentaries didn't say their names. Done. So neighbor Estelle Champon calls police after noticing the previous odd things that we just mentioned, like the mailbox, the car, the shutters, and they're still going on, and it's been a couple more days. So she calls the police. Um, The police get to the location. There's no answer to the door. I'm not sure what French laws are, but they call a locksmith and they go inside. Sick. Yeah, so that's cool. Um... Then, as they're inside, they see nothing unusual. Everything's neat. There's no signs of a struggle. The only, like, odd thing that they notice at first, because they aren't really... They're, like, looking for, like, bodies or anything big, like a struggle, like blood or anything like that. They're not seeing that. So, the only things that they're seeing on the surface are that there's sheets missing from the beds. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean anything, because it's, like, everyone thinks that they left for Australia. So, it's, like, maybe they really liked those bed sheets, and they took them with them to Australia. But didn't like the other car. (laughs) <laughs> uh, saying. <laughs> just just saying um they had more than one car yep i know that's what i mean it's weird that you would take bed sheets and not a car all of your vehicles that's true or like try selling your vehicles first yeah that is weird you're right um but because of all of this the officers believe that the family left voluntarily also it is as a funny that we mentioned this also uh it's to be noted that all the cars are at the house at this time besides a c5 which is it's like based off of what i saw it's like a smaller sedan it looks like an older caprice like with size and like style so it's not a very big small Mm -hmm. sedan size Mm -hmm. car it's like four doors um so logically all six members of the family couldn't fit in that vehicle at once with luggage i'm this guy's dumb so, Carry on. but again, that's nothing to launch like a formal police investigation. Yeah. It's nothing like, like it's suspicious, but it's like, there's nothing that points to a crime at this time, you know? Yeah. As a police officer, would you agree? Yeah. Okay. Um, but Agnes's family finds it odd that they would leave, especially with the children, without telling anyone, especially family. So officers go back out on Friday the 15th. And they're a little bit more thorough this time, probably because more people are concerned that they're an important family in France. So 
like, and even more important, the community, because it's a smaller community, and they have this aristocratic family that's, like, hanging out, and then they just disappear. Uh, so it's a little bit more alarming than, like, most people, I guess. Um, so this time around, they notice that all the pictures have been taken out of the picture frames, which kind of signifies that someone wanted to take them. Like, those are, like, memories dear to them, and they wanted to take them. Like, you know what I mean? Our stories are very similar. Are they really? Yeah. Holy shit. Um, that's weird. That's <laughs> why that's why when I was doing my research it was compared a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's crazy. Anyways, I just kept I kept reading about how they would say like Xavier de Ponte Lagones is similar to a past murderer and I would be like, What are you talking about? And I'd skip through it because I would see your guys' name on there. I'm like, <laughs> No, 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 I don't wanna know. Um so again, Nothing suspicious was found. Like, that's still just, like, weird. But if they left for Australia, they would take those pictures with them, you know? Yep. So, anyways, Monday the 18th, the police visit again for a third time. That's a lot. Still nothing. Tuesday, April 19th, officers respond out for a fourth time. They find something this go-around that is interesting, but nothing incriminating, um... So they find a receipt for a purchase at a DIY store that was in the nearby area. It was either on March 23rd or March 30th. I found conflicting states. Um, So this store was in a town that was about 320 kilometers or 200 miles from Nanta. Um, So it's like a three and a half hour drive. So kind of out of the way. Like that's like driving from here to like southern Colorado. I wouldn't do that without a purpose and especially not for a diy store no. um but the items purchased included a large roll of trash bags a box of adhesive plastic paving slabs slabs so what, what is that last thing adhesive plastic paving slabs hmm. i have no idea okay i'm imagining they are like um stick on something yeah okay yeah um so Again, nothing to do anything about. So Wednesday the 20th, guess what? (laughs) It's a fifth visit from police. They search again. Nothing. Um, Thursday the 21st, officers go out for a sixth time. So they've gone out consecutively every day since the 18th. Yeah. Make sure I can count right. That's a lot. I know. And so while they're searching a house again, um, there's a wanted notice that goes out for the whole family because they're kind of like, this isn't okay. Um, and then a wanted notice is like a bolo for us. Yeah. Be on the lookout. Yeah. Um, a responding lieutenant is taking a closer look at the terrace, which is like a patio in the backyard in the home. Um, and it's kind of raised. Like, it's about as high as these chairs are right here. So it's like, it's like an awkward height. It's like at your waist. Okay. So it's not too high off the ground, but it's not too, it's not yeah. right on the ground. Right. Um, so the lieutenant looks underneath because it's like piled with like junk and it starts to like see what's underneath mm-hmm. this terrace. And mm-hmm. then they see something suspicious under the ground. And so they start to dig and they very quickly run into plastic bags that are wrapped in duct tape underneath the dirt. Mm. And this is where they find the bodies of the family members wrapped up in bed sheets, which were then wrapped in the trash bags. And the dog's bodies are also found Ugh. in the same manner. 
Um, there was also religious items like a candle or a cross or like a just a religious figure Ew. found next to each member of the family. Ew. So that shows, according to the detectives, like a sign of remorse. And then also the fact that there was an attempt at a proper Catholic burial, which is super fucked up. That it's like, I'm going to murder somebody you, then... and then I'm going to try to be respectful. It's just, ugh, it's ugh. weird. Um uh, also, something odd is that Agnes and the three children, Arthur, Anne, and Benoit, as well as the dogs, are essentially buried in one grave. So there's just, like, a big hole, and they're all kind of, like, in one spot. Okay. And Thomas was buried in a separate grave. Hmm. Yeah, super weird, but there's a theory on why that's in a second. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's one body missing. Um, so police go back and they're now searching the home for Xavier's body. They're like, well, maybe he's like in an attic or maybe he's like in the basement or maybe he's hiding in a closet somewhere, you know? Um, but as we know, nothing was found in the home and that is still true. Like not even a drop of blood, not a single drop of blood is found. And it's super weird since it's a crime scene of a family being murdered. At least that's what we're assuming, um, at this point. Also, there's not a single fingerprint or DNA found on the house from anyone. They tested the entire house. Nothing. So it was fucking cleaned. Um, same thing with the uh, the trash bags that they were wrapped in. Nothing. There's no That's fingerprints. Weird. There's nothing. No DNA. Nothing. They tested our house. They'd be like, oh, fuck. There's a lot of cats here. <laughs> there's two. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Did you hear what she said, Oliver? <laughs> it's because he's sitting here. It just made me... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm offended for you. Um, So they don't find that sixth body that they're looking for. So it's kind of obvious at this time their main suspect is Xavier. Um, so officers start the search for him outside of the house as a living suspect. Um, they begin at a monastery, which is where they suspect he could have withdrawn to, where he could afford discretion um, and kind of be harbored yeah that's the word i'm looking for thank you um but also the same day with all of this an international warrant is even put out for him so good yeah they were not fucking around they're like yeah we because they've been there for almost a week now over a period of a week and they haven't found anything and it's like clear to them that these bodies have been here for at least a week he's gone oh if he's not here oh yeah um so during all of this the da um Xavier Rosa, um, weird that he has the same first name, not the same person. He was doing a press conference, um, like, while the police were searching the house for the sixth time. And he, in the middle of the press conference, receives news that the bodies had been found. But that he just received a phone call, and he took the phone call, and he comes back, and he's just like, um, we're going to continue this later. And then he just, like, leaves. It's like all of the reporters were like, holy shit, something's happening. But they didn't know what. So they didn't reveal. It's like, as tactful as you could do it, I think. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is a true story, but I'm pretty sure it's a true story. When 9-11 happened, George W. Bush was reading a story to, like, yes. kindergartners or something, yep. and he was told what happened, like, while he was reading the story, and he kept reading, kept his composure pretty well. Mm -hmm. Like, you can tell, like, something was, like, he was, like, oh, fuck. Yeah. But he kept reading, he finished the story, and he left, and then did his shit, and I I, I respect that a lot. Yep. So, um, 
Yeah. Anyways, so let's get to what happened to those five family members. The autopsy was performed on the next day of April 22nd. Each of the children were found to have remnants of sleeping pills in their internal organs. So um, they were drugged. Uh, Agnes didn't have sleeping pills in her system. She had problems sleeping, so she had a sleep apnea machine that she had to sleep with every night in order for her to sleep. God, I hope we never need that. Yeah, it looks awful. I mean, if it helps me breathe, I mean... It just looks really uncomfortable and you have to sleep on your back, I think. I don't know. Anyways, her sleep apnea machine um, stopped working at 3 a.m., which was the morning of the 4th. So, like, night of the 3rd going into the morning of the 4th. So, makes sense. And it, yeah, and it kept track of that? It keeps track of it, apparently. That's nifty. I think that's how all sleep apnea machines are because Couldn't they need to keep you. track of, like, how well you're breathing and stuff. And if it just stops working... Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. If you sleep with one or know somebody who does, if you're a doctor, please let me know. Um, So they suspect that she was the first victim since she wasn't drugged and then her sleep apnea machine just stops working. Um, So one by one, starting with Agnes, they were all then shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber long rifle while they were sleeping. Um, Something to point out, there were no neighbors that were awoken by gunshots, and that's weird because there were 10 of them, and no one heard a single one. So, also, if you look at the pictures of... Also, let me just... My main source of this was Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. It's super good, season one, episode three, but um, they show you, like, a video and like pictures of the home and it's basically it reminds me of san francisco how they're like narrow yeah, and yeah. very tall but like yeah. they're like you share two walls yeah. with another home like you're close like you right. don't have a yard to distance right. yourself like yeah. you're up against that house so mm-hmm. it reminds me of like amityville what do you mean uh, how oh he goes through the whole house and not a single person wakes up yeah and like the neighbors didn't hear anything yeah either. yep yeah, so it's weird. Um, but either way, this showed that the murder was very planned and orchestrated because he thought of all of these things. Um, autopsy also shows that the family was possibly killed on the night of the 3rd going into the 4th, which is also corresponded with Agnes's um, sleep apnea machine. I mentioned before that Toma was buried in a separate grave, so the autopsy kind of proves why that is because it's... They believe that based off of what they found, that he was he died at a different time than the rest of his family. And that time is estimated to be Tuesday the 5th. Okay. So the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, some speculate that the reason for him dying after the other parts of the family is because of hesitation from Xavier. Um, because they are a noble family. Uh Thomas, who was the firstborn of Xavier, since Arthur was not the firstborn, yeah. he would have been the heir and the the, fam- the family lineage, basically. Right, 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 right. So people think that he hesitated with killing him to keep his lineage of killing his family, I guess, alive. <laughs> uh, anyways, so their funeral service was held at 2.30 p.m. Um, at the church that they went to in Nanta. The church... Um, is where the Benoit was the altar server and stuff. Apparently, 1,400 people attended the service. Wow. Yeah. And there was obviously security provided because they thought that Zafia would come back for the funeral. Sure. Um, and also with, like, that many people. It's a large gathering. Mm-hmm. It would never happen in 2020. 
Uh, so after the funeral, the family was cremated and then buried on April 30th. It's 2021. Well, now it's 2021, <laughs> but before. And I guess so. Anyways, <laughs> there's um some discrepancy on when the family was killed um, based off of the neighbors. The neighbors find it hard to believe that the autopsy is accurate because they are very firm in when they think they last saw the family. Um, so I'm going to get into that, but I'm going to get into the family activity as well before their deaths, because it's kind of suspicious. On April 3rd, um, Agnes, Xavier, and the three kids, um, not Toma because he was at university at the time, they dine at a restaurant and then they go to the cinema. And that evening around 10.37 PM, Xavier, um, leaves a message for his sister, Christine, on, his, on her phone stating, quote, this is a very long quote, so I just felt like I couldn't take any of it out, though. So, quote, we spent our Sunday evening in the cinema together, then in a restaurant, and we've just got back. I'm just calling to ask if it's too late to speak to you on the phone, and now I see it's gone to voicemail. But I was surprised you spoke to me about Bertram, who's getting ready for his flight, but I thought he'd only just arrived. So I was a bit surprised. Anyway, sending you my love. It's not if it's not too late, call me back or send me a text and I'll call you. Okay, I'm going to put the kids to bed. Say hi to everyone. See you soon. Maybe. 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 That's weird. I know. Um Bertram is his brother-in-law. Okay. So, just context for that. So, on the same day, one neighbor named Fabrice remembers um this being the day last day they saw Agnes and shortly after they saw um Xavier putting large bags into his car. Okay. Yeah. On April 4th, Xavier gets to talk to his sister on the phone, which is the next day. They talked for about 20 to 30 minutes, and she recalls that everything seemed normal. So that would have been, according to the autopsy's timeline, that would have been the day after or the day of the family being killed because they were killed early that morning. Okay. Um, so kind of weird that she didn't notice anything wrong with him, but again, who knows. So that evening on the 5th, um, which is the same night that Thomas is supposed to have been killed. Right. Um, around 9 p.m., Xavier dines with Thomas, and reportedly the day before, um, remember I said on the 3rd that he wasn't there because he was at university? Um, apparently on the, the day before, on the 4th, Xavier was able to convince Thomas to come back to home due to his mother suffering a cycling accident and having to be hospitalized. He said that she was, like, in a coma. Like, he made this whole... Uh, shindig about it um so (laughs) toma was with a friend when he received the news from his father and he um quickly left his friend's house and caught a train and came home and his friend had been messaging him all night and um like back and forth until around midnight and then toma stops texting his friend back and also, it's noted that during their dining experience, the waiters who served the uh, Xavier and Thomas remembered that Thomas felt ill during the end of the meal. Mm. So, and they had also hardly spoken to each other during the meal. Hmm. So they were like, it was just a weird yeah. interaction. Um, on April 5th, uh, so the same day, uh, neighbors, other neighbors state that they saw Agnes in front of um, the Dupont de Logones uh, home around 12.15 or 12.30 p.m. So 
that would not correlate with the timeline that they were killed early morning on the 4th. And on the same day, a hairdressing employee that worked near um, the family home in Nanta also specifically remembers seeing Agnes on the 5th, um, saying that she went to pick up her wages and it was a Tuesday um, and she really needed her wages. And then she like, so she goes to the hairdressing and then she passes by the home and she saw her um, walking the dogs and they spoke briefly. Hmm. Yeah. So then on April 7th, a neighbor states that they also ran into Agnes as they were both walking their dogs and they spoke and the neighbor specifically remembers that it was this day because that would have been a Thursday and that's when she would go pick up her kid from daycare. Okay. Um, but to kind of, I don't know what the word for it is, be, what is it, devil's advocate? Sure. Um, if you pick up your kid every Thursday, how can you just, if it's like a routine, how can you distinguish? Like, sometimes they just, like, melt together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, especially if you're questioned a few weeks, like, they yeah. didn't find the body until three weeks after. Right. So it's like, at that point, is your memory that fresh to remember if it was specifically that Thursday or was it Thursday before? Right, or, right, You right, know right. what I mean? Yeah. Um, same thing with, like, picking up your wages and stuff like that. If it's been almost a month before you even get interviewed by yeah. police... It's just, have you... It's not reliable. Yeah, it's not very reliable, and we all we all know because of our jobs. So you and I know that, like, witness testimony isn't always the best. Yeah. It's nice to have witnesses, but it's, like, we're so susceptible to misremembering oh, yeah. and um, other people... There's a lot of research on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if other neighbors got together and they're like, oh, I swear I saw her on that day, and then other people would be like, oh, you know what? You're right. I think I saw her that day, too. So we're very uh, suggestible, too. Oh, yeah. So I'm not saying that what they remembered is incorrect. I'm just saying that there's a good chance that it's a... Embellished. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. So another friend of Agnes agrees that with the previous neighbor that they saw her on the 7th, um... Because they saw her on the sh- at the shops. Um, but again, it's like, was it really the 7th or she was shopping? Because in France, I guess when I... I was talking to one of my coworkers about this because she went to France um, with her wife. And they she was talking about how every single person had like a baguette. Like we're just always walking with baguettes. And I was like, that's weird. Why, why do you think that is? And she's like, because they don't have fridges like we do. Like they buy day groceries. So they go and they get their baguette for the day and they go and they get their food for the day. And like their fridge is like a mini fridge. And it's for like, yeah. it's not like us Americans where we just hoard food, I guess. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like if Agnes were to go to the shop like every day or every other day to get food for the family, like how can you remember if it was a Thursday or Friday of that week where yep. they went missing? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sorry, just to play more devil's advocate there. But also on that night, uh, the, that same neighbor noted that um, they saw Xavier making several trips to the car with large bags. Um, so that's just like some weird things and some rememberings of when they thought that they saw the family, but who knows? Anyways, um, Xavier also did some weird actions before the disappearance and murder of his family. Um, but let's get into a little bit of his history that might have led him to do this. Um, so in the early 2000s, the family tried to relocate to Florida. They don't succeed. They thought it would be a lot more simple, I guess. But, I mean, I feel like for anybody who's trying to become a U.S. citizen, 
it's I couldn't even take that citizenship test that they have to do. Like, that's outrageous. The they, process is yeah, uh, it's ridiculous. Long. It's yeah. long and it's crazy. Anyways, so then they moved back to France when the Florida venture took all of their money. Um, but Xavier wouldn't tell any of the family members that he tried to play it cool, like they still had all their money. Um, so then from 2001 and 2011, there are more struggles. So in that decade, they lose a lot more money. Um, and then there's bailiffs that are trying to get money, um, Mm -hmm. from him. Xavier claims to be a successful businessman and he travels all around France for his business, but that's just not the case. Um, I think he did that to try to get business, for his failing businesses because it was stated that he would have very short-term businesses. Um, I thought that that maybe it was for money laundering and he had side business somewhere else, but if he had no money, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Anyways, so he just, he was a noble family and like he didn't want to be looked at as this poor man. Right. Because like his house like was up, like a lot of his bills were like it was just really bad things were about to be taken away so i think he just didn't want to be looked at as like an embarrassment right. yeah. and a loser essentially um which i think is a really common factor in these family annihilators um in january 20th of 2011 so 3 months before the murders xavier's father dies of a heart attack um and a close neighbor of xavier's father yeah a close neighbor of his father, uh, named Michael, recalls uh, Xavier's actions after his father's passing. Um, he stated things like Xavier had cleared out all of Hubert's things. So one thing in particular of interest was his father's count signet ring, which he found and he like really wanted that, but he got it, and that wasn't recovered when hmm. they looked at the house. So, I mean, it's kind of an important thing. So if they were to get like robbed or something, I think I'd want to take that too. Anyways. And also, Xavier was searching for any extra money that his father may have set aside, but there was none. His father was about as broke as he was. So I think that also led into Xavier's um, mentality of being a failure because he, um, his father was a failure and he probably wanted to not be his father. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Just a lot of like mental things that he was working through. And this is when, also when, um, Xavier finds his father's uh, 22 caliber long rifle. Um, Michael recalls that when Xavier found the rifle, that there was an unusual expression on his face. Um, typically, Xavier was a smiling, happy man. But the moment uh, Xavier found the gun, Michael recalls that he just saw like a dark hmm. presence in his eyes, which Ooh. is haunting, especially since what happened yeah um on february 2nd xavier received his firearms license and in march xavier registered at a shooting range just north of nanta where he went four times between the 26th of march and april 1st so it's a lot for a little period of time like that um all this time thomas and benoit had always also been learning how to shoot with xavier um it's also worth noting that before inheriting his father's gun, um, those who knew Xavier would say that he was someone who had no interest in weapons, like didn't want anything to do with them, which is odd. I think growing up, like my dad has an interest in guns and stuff. And so I was raised in that um, against my choice, but still. Um, so it seems like his father had that interest, but um, 
he didn't, even with being raised around it. Hmm. So it's weird that he would pick this up after his father dies. I think it's weird, but maybe he wanted to remember his father for what he loved. I don't know. Or. Or. He's practicing to kill his family. <laughs> or that. Um, also, while at the shooting range, he um, asked his shooting instructor about the use of a silencer on the rifle. So. That's cool. Um, March 12th, bullets for the twenty two caliber rifle were purchased, as well as that silencer. Um, yeah. Then on April 1st, according to bank statements, there was a purchase for a cement, shovel, and a hoe. Uh, it was presumably bought by Xavier, but you can't really prove who purchased that. Um, the following day on the 2nd, there were also receipts from several different shops in the area where a total of four bags of lime were purchased, and they were 10 kilograms each, which is about 22 pounds. So that's like 88 pounds of lime. Do you know what lime is? I'm not talking about the fruit. Right, like the mineral. Yeah, so, um, no. It's more of a... lie? Lime. It's not lie, I promise. So, lime is a, is calcium oxide. Yeah, it's, like limestone. Yeah, um, but it's in a powder form. Yeah. Um, so, aka it's called quick lime or burnt lime, and it's a chemical compound, compound, and it's an un, it's an unstable chemical. It's commonly used for making glass, porcelain, bleach powder, and cement. So since he already bought the cement, I believe he bought it for bleach powder mm. to get that house extra Squeaky clean. clean. Yeah. Which I think is how he cleaned up all the blood. Anyways, on April 4th, the family has... Um, April 6th, Xavier has presumably spent the whole week in the home, um, but on this day he was seen outside of the house alone, and the neighbors that remember seeing him were like, he was just... On a mission, came back. Like, didn't talk to anybody, didn't look at anybody. Um, on the April 8th, which is a Friday, Xavier's computer records show that this was his, the last time he was active on it, and he was last active on a Catholic online forum around 8 p.m. It's fucking weird. Isn't it weird? Yeah. I wonder if he was, like, looking up how to properly bury your family after you murder them. Um, <laughs> on a forum, like a subreddit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. So the same day, he sends an email to his brother-in-law, um, who is Christine's husband, saying, everything's fine, Bertram. You'll hear more detailed news soon through Christine. Bye for now. All the best, Xavier. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Ugh. So then April 9th through the 14th, um, there were typed letters sent to Xavier's immediate family and close friends. Um, the letter was eight pages long and appears to be written by Xavier, um, just because it would say, like, um, if it would ever say the word I, it would have in parentheses right next to it, Xavier. Okay. It was really weird. Um, if you guys want to, like, check out the letter, you can Google it, or Unsolved Mysteries shows a good chunk of it. Anyways, he... Explains in the letter that he's been looked after by the government from, nope, he's been looked after by the American government and worked covertly for the American Drug Enforcement Administration, which is DEA, and he's been working with them to take down a drug ring. Um, because of this, his entire family had to relocate to the United States as part of a federal witness protection program. Because of this, no one would be able to contact them for a manner of at least a few years. Which I think is, like, weird. It's like, they won't be able to contact you ever. Yeah. 
Ever. Yep. Ever, ever. You're done. You're dead to the world. Literally. In this story. Anyways. Um, Xavier also tells his family to circulate reports on social media that the family did indeed move to Australia and also ask them to keep the DEA thing a secret. So. Like, we're actually a family of spies, but you can't tell anyone. Yeah. So, the whole okay. letter, the letter is signed by the whole family, but like I said, it's suggested to be written by, or it's assumed to be written by Xavier. Um also, uh, a close friend of Xavier, Bruno de Stabernat, Stabern, Stabern, I'm just calling him Bruno. Um, he states that the letter's tone was very much like how Xavier would speak. So, he's like, he started out saying, hey, everybody. And he's like, that's something he would totally say. Mm-hmm. So, it's all, I feel like Xavier is doing this to, like, build his alibi, um, not really, I guess alibi is not the right word for it. I think he's just trying to buy himself time and also trying to, like, make it look like... He, I don't think he thought that the bodies would be found. So I think he just thought that they would just sit, notice the family's gone, accept the DEA thing, and just stop looking for them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, if you're part of the witness protection program, like, you wouldn't be allowed to tell anybody. They would literally come... Find you and take you. Yep. Like, you wouldn't be allowed to take anything. No. Nothing. Mm-mm. Um, So the fact that he's, like, telling schools and everything, the Australia story, and, like, is building up everything else, and then it's like, oh, by the way, I'm a spy. Don't <laughs> tell anybody. It's just weird. Um, So there's, again, no exact proof that this is written by him, and they tested it for DNA, <clears throat> but... um. It's nothing was found to match him. So. Cool. Yeah. It's just weird. Yep. <laughs> um, so then the when family and friends initially read this letter, they weren't, like, terribly surprised. Like, obviously, they were surprised because they were like, oh, my God, like, what is going on? But when they thought about Xavier, they were like, that seems like something he would get into. So, hmm. yeah, they weren't like too concerned but at the right. same time like they were like concerned does that make sense <laughs> yeah like i'd be concerned I mean, if all of a sudden my family but also concerned i mean i it was just like one of those things where it's like holy shit concern. i'm never gonna see my family again right. like that really sucks and like yeah. wow that's a big news but it's like not a shocker right um so then on the on the 10th, Xavier leaves the home in Nanta. His vehicle was caught on a speed camera between Nanta and La Rochelle. Um, so around noon that day, Xavier is at a restaurant where he uses his credit card to pay. Um, and then he spends the night at a hotel there. Um, on the 11th, Xavier continues south to Toulouse. He is then spotted with drawing money from uh, his credit card on a camera at the ATM. So they know it was him. Um during his travels, he continues to use his credit card. Like, he is, like, oh not caring. <laughs> He's like, this is cool. They can't I am not me. hiding my tracks. I'm not doing anything. Um, so he's also taking his time because France is the size of France. Like, <laughs> that was an awful way to explain that. It's just, like, it doesn't take a day to travel from these places. Like, right. he is, like, making a, a big old deal about it you know what i mean if i if i were to take the amount of days to drive somewhere that he did i could probably go to the east coast and back you know what i mean yeah um and then some i'm sure but he is not i guess he's not covering the i don't know what i'm trying to say i got you he's using his credit card which is dumb 
<laughs> no. I'm just saying he's just like he's... And he doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, okay. So you're like, <laughs> I'm going to edit this out. Just get to the point. So time uh, is of the f- essence. Like, currently, right now, he's not in Nantha anymore. And in f- they haven't even found the bodies of the family members. But with most family annihilators, it ends with... Um, the Annihilator committing suicide mm-hmm. with a good chunk of them. And at this time, they still haven't found any bodies. So they're retracing his steps. Like, that would just be so difficult because yeah. now they're, like, so far behind. Anyways. Yeah. Um, and it also seems like with his paths, uh, Xavier has, like, a destination in mind. He's taking a very clear course. Um so it is true. Up to this point, investigators believe that they Xavier uh, was in, going to places that he... That things were like significant in his life, such as the place where him and Agnes um, lived during the beginning of their marriage and where their kids were first born. Um, uh, April 12th, he reaches Arles. Um, April 13th, he arrives at La Son sur Mer. Um, last stop was, I'm so sorry, Rockburn sur Arn- oh, Agnes. I'm going to be saying that a whole lot more, so I better get better at it. Um, this is reportedly where family remembers Zavier being his happiest, so it makes sense why he would stop his travels there. Yeah. April 15th, that was the last time Zavier was positively seen. He was 50 years old at the time, and he's caught on CCTV at the parking lot of a Formula One hotel, and he stayed there at Rockburn sur Agnes. Um, he is holding a long bag that law enforcement believes the rifle was in that he used to kill his family. Oddly, Xavier sees the camera and he waves goodbye at it Ew, before walking into the mountains in the area. Did he kill himself? So, people thought that he goes to the cliffs to kill himself and finally commit suicide. Right. Um, so... Fast forward to April 21st, which is six days later, almost a week later, the family has been found, and it's been three weeks that Xavier has a running start, running head start. Um, the 22nd is when law enforcement are searching the, the, all of France for Xavier's car, and they find it quickly at that Formula One hotel. So they search, they see the CCT footage, they see him walk off in the wilderness, and like, we have to search the hills right it is like it's a vast area they show it on unsolved mysteries it's a huge area um but they are using dogs search crews helicopters everything they can find right and they search every inch of that wilderness for two months Hmm. and they don't find anything yeah so here are some theories about what happened obviously one theory is the financial issue um that Zafier killed his family because he was embarrassed of his failures. Um, a lot of people that knew the family, especially Xavier, state he could never have done anything like this. Um, one person was very vocal about one person who was very vocal about this was the family attorney Stefan Goldstein. He states that it is virtually impossible for Xavier to have done this because he had a bad back. And if you remember, I told you that that terrace was at a very awkward height that he would have had to have been hunched over to dig the grave. And um, Stefan basically said that that's impossible. He couldn't even bend over to, like, pick something up. Hmm. Like, he was in so much pain. Um, So having to do that while slouched out over, and it was just impossible. Um, 
Also, he stated that Xavier was a very involved father. He was very present in his child's lives. Like, he was basically a mother hen to them. And he's like, they, he would never do anything to hurt them. So, um, Xavier's friend Bruno, who we mentioned earlier, um, just states that Xavier was very supportive and caring man. Firstly, for marrying Agnes and adopting um, Arthur when it was uncommon for the time to marry an unwed woman and with a child out of wedlock. Right. <laughs> so it was very controversial at the sure. time. And it was very, um, he said it was very brave for Xavier to do oh, that. So brave. I know. So, so brave. But like, <laughs> given this stipulation around it at the time period, I can understand where it was kind of like, wow. Well, it's a bummer that he did because he killed all of his kids. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Bruno had a significant car accident when, um, and I was going to say in a previous life, that's not true. In his life, previous to when all this happened, um, he could, it was very upsetting to him because he could never, he could no longer play instruments. His hands were very, um, damaged by the car accident. And Zafia was there to help him through that tough time. He's like, I, I couldn't have done it without him basically, of his support and stuff. Um, he also stated that it was baffling that if he did kill his family because, you know, a lot of his friends were like, he, he's a noble family. Like, why would he kill right. his lineage? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a journalist named Anne-Sophie Martin. Uh, she poses the question that since there was no physical evidence that ties Xavier to the crime scene, he had no previous interactions with the law. Somehow he just became a criminal mastermind. Um yeah, but uh, she believes he did it. She's just like, that's just like a weird it's just scenario. Wild. It's just a wild scenario. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, to be fair, I feel like everybody listening to this would probably think they could do the perfect crime based off <laughs> of everything that we've heard that's done wrong. Right. You know what I mean? So maybe we're all just like master, criminal masterminds, but who knows? This is where I put the LOLOLOL. I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Um, the journalist and Sophie believes that Xavier did murder his family and he didn't do indeed like full law enforcement. Like he, he did it. He did the perfect crime. Um, she also points out that this is her statistics. So I hope it's correct. 98% of family annihilators, um, the, their incidents end in suicide, like right on the spot. Yeah. Like there's no like cooling off period. Like it seems like he had, um, and he spent those days traveling through France. It's like, why didn't he do it? Right. Why did he wait six days? Yeah. Or whatever it is. Um, and there's, like, law enforcement never looked into the one or two percent. Like, clearly it's 98 percent, but there are those chances. And they right. never thought that Xavier would be the one or two percent chance. Right. right. Um, she, this is what she believes. She believes he went on the run. He spent so much time organizing and making sure the house was clean and sending those letters. Um, that And it bought him time to ensure that um, when he did when he was driving out on the country like nobody would be looking for him as a suspect they would just be like oh it's xavier you know um and she thinks that he also walked into the wilderness and used that footage to his advantage she thinks that while they were searching the wilderness area xavier yeah xavier used that extra time to escape to escape on a train um though there's nothing that was purchased in his name but he withdrew cash so he totally could have gotten, yeah. play, like, money yep. to get a ticket yep. and used a fake name with cash. Like, yep. 
Who knows? Um, or he could have been a stowaway on a cargo ship. He could have hitchhiked. Like, he could have done all kinds of things. Um, according to Aunt Sophie, you can also take a mountain path that goes to Italy. <laughs> just goes there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, it's just... There's Europe is pretty small. Right. Like, you can... The possibilities are endless. Yeah. You know, if you take a train, you can go to anywhere right. in Europe. Right. It's not you like can, here where you're... No. Yeah. In. It's not like a eight-hour flight. Right. You know? Yeah. She also believes that he more than likely went to Latin America because he spoke both English and Spanish very well. Mm. Um, his friend Bruno also supports this idea. He thinks he hopped on a cargo ship to possibly Argentina because he could pass as a Latin American based on his looks if he shaved his head and, like, shaved everything. I mean, that's what all the Nazis did, and they passed off just fine, so... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> you can do anything you want if you make it to Argentina. Yeah. Anyways. Um, End rant. <laughs> End rant. Nazis. <laughs> Ruining things. Um, also, the investigators state that finding a Xavier is basically impossible because he looks like nobody but everybody at the same time. Right. He's like an average looking dude. Um. Others claim that um, they don't believe that any of the family was even murdered. The, this is because no one, not even um, like Agnes's family, was allowed to identify the bodies. When they had the funeral services, they weren't allowed to look at the bodies. It was closed casket. So and weird. then they were cremated afterwards. So they really have weird. no confirmation that those bodies that were found were even theirs. It hmm. is a little weird, but also they... They, I think that maybe, I don't know about Fran, French, <laughs> I don't know about French standards, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I think that they, they got shot in the head twice. Yeah. Like, that's really upsetting, and I yeah. think maybe just with good faith that they were just, of... their way of, like, not, yeah. like, they were a very recognizable family. They didn't need to be identified. They were probably just trying to, like, respect the family and sure. be like, you don't want this to be your, your last memories of your family no. member. Um, so that's what I think, but that led them to, that was leading a lot of people to believe there was some kind of cover up. Um, also a popular theory is that Xavier was framed. <laughs> According to, um, Unsolved Mysteries, um, the creator Clay Jeter states, um, this is a long quote. One theory is that Xavier was caught up in some stuff that we don't really understand, and the letters that Xavier wrote were all forced, and actually there were professional killers who did all of this. They killed Xavier's entire family and later killed him and framed Xavier for the murder of his own family. Really, this was just something Xavier was caught up in, maybe a financial desperation, and that's how this all came to pass. We don't know who those players are or what their motivations were, but it's one idea of how this could have been done so professionally and still explain the I'm sorry, the disappearance of Xavier, that he actually was murdered, but murdered away from the home in a way to, and designed to look like he killed them and gone on the road trip and disappeared and ran off, end quote. It's pretty wild. Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. Mafia does crazy things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what he was involved in, if anything, with his finances and his businesses. Well, if he had people come in to collect mm -hmm. those amounts of money. Yeah. That you mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. That's sketchy. Right. So, 
I don't know. Maybe. Hmm. Maybe he was involved in some sketchy ass shit and some people came to his yeah. house. But then I feel like people would have noticed seeing other members going in and out of yeah. the home. They were just noting, yeah. noticing Xavier. So, like, how do they sneak away when he isn't able to be yeah. sneakily? Anyways. Um, another idea is going off of Xavier's statements of wanting a mass murder. Apparently, Agnes had been posting something on a religious forum stating that she was having difficulty in her relationship with Xavier, and he once told her, quote, all of us dying in a mass suicide would not be the worst thing for us, end quote. Good lord. Yeah. Okay, Jonestown. I know. Like, holy shit. I think, again, it's the financial thing. I'm sure that was causing some kind of turmoil in their relationship, because how would you hide that from your wife? Yeah kind of cringe there uh in 2005 a um walker that's a weird way to put it someone who was walking <laughs> found a set of bones along a along with a survival camp near the south coast of france which is near the area xavier was last seen um the bones revealed a medical pin found on the forearm of one of the bones but it's unknown if xavier had such a thing mm. um unfortunately after some testing it was determined that it wasn't him but they have no idea who the bones belong to weird i know uh also xavier is reportedly seen over a thousand times okay during the between 2011 and now huh so So is hitler Hitler. yeah but again he's like he looks so average yeah Yeah. um it's easy for him just to pass off as another person right um which gets me into apparently sometime in 2005 a journalist received a photo of xavier with his two sons sitting at a table um and the back of the photo stated i am still alive with um from then until this hour, right below it. And if you remember, there were pictures taken from the house. Yeah. So they think that it was him that wrote this. It got rid of one of his pictures and sent it off to a journalist. Weird. Um, but also, the family, you can Google the du- DuPont de Logones family and you can find pictures on there. And I'm sure you can yeah. get them to look professional. That's pretty easy these Yeah, days. exactly. And um, it was We're also really signed... really good at Photoshop. <laughs> right. Um, it was also apparently signed by Xavier and stuff like that. The journalist clearly hands this picture over to the police, and they test it for fingerprints and DNA, and unfortunately... Nada. Nothing. Of course. Um, so it's unknown if this was actually Xavier or if it was somebody just fucking with police, which is super fucked up. So then, in 2016, police raided a monastery in the town he was last seen at after several of those churchgoers claimed that he was there. However, this determined that it was just a case of somebody who looked like him. Then on October... I know, right? (laughs) This... It gets even worse. On October 11th, 2009, there was actually an arrest in the Glasgow airport in Scotland. There was an advanced passenger information alert that there was a stolen passport that was being used. There, that passenger had booked a flight to Glasgow. So they were like, hey, this right. might be him yeah. if he's stealing passports. So we're going to Glasgow and we're going to fucking wait for him. So they arrest him when he lands and he's being fingerprinted. And at the same time, French police are looking at CCTV footage and they're like, it looks like him, but we don't think it's him. So they're waiting for the fingerprints, and it comes back. It's not him. It's a yeah. 69-year-old man who was just trying to visit his wife. Oof. I know. Um, apparently, he had reported his passport stolen in 2014. 
found it oh, and forgot never... to tell PSA. the police. I literally put at the end here, oh. PSA, if some if you report something is stolen and then you find what it is, please get it unstolen reported. Yep. Please. Because yeah. you're going to be, if you say you lost your license plates, if they were stolen and the officer Huge runs those plates, deal. guess what happens? You're getting yeah. pulled out of that, ho- that car at gunpoint. Yep. That's not something you want to do. Nope. No. So please. Bad news bears. Yeah. No. Please. Because they're going to oh. think that someone, they have the suspect in there. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's all I have is Avier has still not been found to this day. You are going to be shocked at how similar really? ours are. Yes. I wonder if maybe he took some inspiration. That's kind of what I was wondering. If he, like. Yeah. Because they, they searched his, uh, like, computer records and right. everything, and they didn't find anything that would suggest he had searched for, like, how to murder your family or anything weird. The only thing that they found was weird was um the thing that Agnes had posted about and then yeah. his last moments on the internet. Hmm. Yeah. That was really good. Yeah? That's it's wild. a crazy story. Uh, what do you think happened? I think he killed him. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, and I think he just hid really well because the only reason I say that is because this guy hid really well mm-hmm. for decades. So, yeah, and this was in 2011. So, yep. so we got a lot of time. He's only he's 60 now. Yep. The uh, he's the, going to the be record 60? has not been reached. Yeah. At this point, so <laughs> that's what I think. I think when you're just that far ahead of police, it yeah. is they're the whole time they're playing catch up. Mm-hmm. And if you can get far enough ahead... If you can get to Latin America, you're kind of... If you can get far enough ahead and you can drop your identity, mm-hmm. you're good. Yeah. Golden. Yeah. Wild. It's crazy. Yeah. Are you ready? I, I'm so ready. Okay. <clears throat> I'm so excited. I'm glad that you liked this and I, again, tried my best to pronounce things. You did great. Thanks. I was very impressed. Thank you. I'm always doing uh, US-based things because really? I don't want to have to stress. I keep fucking myself in the <laughs> fucking worst ways because I'm like... <laughs> I chose one in India, and I'm choosing yep. one in here, and Don't I can't that. pronounce anything. Yep. <laughs> I feel like an asshole. But I took India, French. India, Germany, France. Yeah, <laughs> I did Germany, so huh? Yep. Um, no, well, I took French in high school. I loved it. I loved it so much. I want to do it again. Especially after this? Especially or? after okay. this, because they were talking in the documentary for Netflix, which is all in French. All of the people that are interviewed, it's everything is in French, not a lick of English. I might for, have skipped that episode for that reason because I didn't want to yeah, sit there. It's it's super good. I really had to pay attention, but I learned a lot. I watched it over and over and over. Um, but there were, like, words that, like, I would pick up that I remembered from high school. And then, yeah. like, the more I was listening to it, the more I was just like, I think I understand not, I don't understand what they're saying, but I can right. pick up, like, what words that they're saying belong to what word in English in the captions. Right. Huh. Anyways. Cool. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. The year was 1971. John Emil List was exactly as you would expect. He was a conservative Lutheran, a Boy Scout leader, and a father of three. But most who knew him thought he was kind of a weirdo. Uh... For example, he would mow his lawn in a full suit and tie. He would go to all kinds of, like, casual events, like, in not casual clothing. Um, He really struggled in social situations. He was not a good, like, talker. Same. Yeah, same. And he struggled to keep a steady job. 
Um, John was an only child, raised in Michigan in a very, very strict German household. He was a mama's boy, and his dad was kind of distant. Basically, like, got mom pregnant, had John, and then said, okay, he's your pet project. Yeah. His classmates said he was uh, kind of like a people pleaser, but also still super awkward and mm. never really, like, he's a people pleaser, but he liked to stay in the background of everything. I was like, that doesn't make sense. It's hard to, he he wasn't, like, extroverted, but he was, he was like a yes man. He'll do whatever oh, you need. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, John served in the army during World War II and Korea. Uh, he didn't do anything really of note. During that time, he ended up going to the University of Michigan, got his master's degree in business administration, and then after that, he was certified as an accountant. And through that whole time, his dating life was like slim pickings, to put nicely, because he was so awkward. However, John met a woman named Jean Seifert and her sister Helen Taylor at a bowling alley in 1951. The day before, Helen had buried her late husband, Marvin, who was a soldier killed in action in Korea. So the next day, sister takes her bowling to be like, let's get your mind on something else. Up walks John, super awkward accountant, (laughs) to save the day or something. Um, At the time, Helen had a nine-year-old daughter named Brenda. Jean thought John was like, all right, at first, pretty cool. He was nice, he was well-groomed, he dressed really well, even when he mowed the lawn, and he had a job, which was, these were all good things. Jean, however, recognized really quickly that John was not, like, super headstrong or super um, vocal about what he wanted or what needed to happen, and she, yeah, she, yes, (laughs) she thought this would be kind of an issue, I know, well, (laughs) should I? (laughs) We'll see. Um, (laughs) so Jean thought this might be kind of an issue because Helen was super careless with money and she thought that John wouldn't be able to like reel that in at all. And it would just cause all kinds of financial ruin for both of them if they were to, uh, continue with a relationship. Mm -hmm. And Jean straight up warned him of this, like before they even went on a date at the bowling alley, like let him know Hey, if you're going to, like, ask my sister out, you seem kind of soft, and she's bad with money. So just a heads up, he didn't really care about that, and he asked Helen out anyways. Did not care about that. Nope. Uh, John fell head over heels for Helen, despite his religious views, which were strong. They hooked up and were, like, hooking up a lot right off the bat. Nice. Uh Uh-huh. Shortly after, Helen told John she was pregnant. He wasn't really ready to marry her, but... So put a sock on it, bro. Well, too late. So, considering the pregnancy and his feelings for her and his religious views again, they uh, got married shortly after in a small ceremony with Helen's sister and husband as witnesses. Mm -hmm. Soon after, Helen told John she was wrong, she read the thing wrong, and she was actually not pregnant. And John kind of felt hinky about this. He was, like, suspected this was just, like, a ploy to get him to marry her. But he was like, oh, well, we were going to get here anyways. So. It was totally a ploy. Oh, yes. 100%. So they decided to stay married regardless. John's father had died years earlier at the end of John's service in World War II. And his mom, whose name was Alma, I think I already said that, 
Um, his mom, Alma, was so attached to her son that while he was in college, she would take a bus once a month to Ann Arbor to spend the weekend with him. Ew. Yeah. Ew. When John brought his new wife to Bay City to meet Alma, things did not go well. Alma told her friends that she believed Helen was a desperate widow with a child who had, quote, trapped her son into marriage. And to be honest, not that wrong. Not that off base. Yeah, no. She said her son could have done much better. And she was, like, super blunt, did not try to hide this, like, didn't try and make nice in front of Helen. Or, yes, in front of Helen. That's cringy. And it wasn't long before Helen and Alma pretty much just exchanged the bare minimum. Uh, Had the least amount of conversation that they would have to have for an in-law and her daughter-in-law. Yeah. Um, in 1955, the list moved to the, to a suburb of Detroit and their first child between the two of them, keep in mind, they still had, uh, her first kiddo, Brenda. In 1955, the list moved to a suburb of Detroit and had their first kiddo besides Brenda, who came from Helen's previous marriage. Uh, their first kiddo's name was Patricia. She went by Pat, um... This was a very welcome change in their life, and it actually brought the family, including Alma, uh, a lot closer together, so that was a good thing. Next year, they had their second kiddo, John Jr. John accepted, John Sr., accepted a management uh, position at Sutherland Paper Company that year as well. Don't what? know nothing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, the family moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh. Yeah. More often than not, John would come home from work to see Helen reading on the couch and si- sipping on some scotch. Hell yeah. <laughs> yep, which left John to also take care of the housework, cook all the food, and take care of the kids, which made him extremely unhappy. And then in 1958, their last son, Frederick, was born. When the family moved to Kalamazoo, John immediately enrolled them into the local Lutheran church. After Frederick was born, Helen decided that like getting up on Sunday, getting all the kids up, getting ready for church was much too much work for her. Um, so she basically would just send John off to church with the kids and she wouldn't go and she would just get up at her leisure and make them a breakfast for when they got home. That sounds like something I would do. <laughs> so it can't be mad at her. <laughs> she suffered from a lot of postpartum depression issues. Oh no. And uh would this was, like, totally normal for that time. She took a lot of prescription medications. She saw a psychiatrist weekly and added insult to injury by drinking very heavily. When Brenda finished high school, she moved out of the house, began her own life, was totally separate from everybody, but the household was still a very large one to manage. John's solution to his deteriorating deteriorating marriage because um, it was not going well, Yeah, was to buy Helen expensive gifts and jewelry. So it turned out that she was not the only one with money uh, control problems. Yeah. They didn't help the situation and placed even more strain on their already precarious financial situation. John ended up uh, getting fired, and he accepted a position with a new Xerox company in Rochester, New York in 1961. He worked hard, produced well. Earned a really good salary, but by 1965, he kept asking for promotion after promotion after promotion, and it got to a point where it was just really wearing on his boss, and um, he was told that the promotions he was asking for were not going to be possible. 
And they told him to basically kick rocks, look for a job somewhere else. They gave him a really good reference. They were just like, we can't give you what you're asking for here. So we suggest that you go. Oh, I see. Yeah, it was not on bad terms at all. Xerox wanted to make uh, John someone else's problem because he was such a nagger. He ended up applying for positions all over the country and was rewarded by an offer comparable to a Xerox salary, but it had the added sheen of an impressive title, which was vice president and comptroller, which I have no idea what that is, but I love the word. A comptroller? Comptroller. For the First National Bank of New Jersey. Nope. First National Bank of Jersey City, New Jersey. (laughs) His office was located in Westfield, New Jersey. Um, the, so they're relocating from Rochester to New Jersey? Yep. That's not a big move, so no. that's nice. Yeah. He, the job went really well at first. Their daughter, Pat, was stoked to be in her school's theater group. Helen was really excited about the house um, because it was the house of her dreams. It had a name, Breeze Knoll. And she loved it. It was a big old mansion. It was a 19-room mansion uh, what? to be Holy specific. Shit. Wow. <laughs> it was on the highest hill in town that sported a ballroom with a Tiffany stained glass skylight, which it's they did important. not know. Yeah. Yes. Um, and a billiards room minus a pool table where John just stored his books. He really was not able to afford the house, but uh, got a contribution from his mom. and Mom's boy. Yeah, so the contingency was, hey, I'll give you, like, the down payment for this house if I can move into one of those 19 rooms. So mom comes, Alma comes, and moves into the house, too. Ew. So. If I were Helen, I'd be like. She, yeah, she was not stoked about that Mm -hmm. at all. She made it super clear to John that she was unhappy having to live with Alma, even though she was in her dream house. So John just could not get it right. I feel bad a little bit. I don't feel but bad also, at all. Like, don't don't over- buy a house yes. if you can't afford yes. it that your mom has to move in and yeah. now your wife's more unhappy. Before long, it became clear to John that the position that he had taken wasn't just um, like a banking job. He wasn't just sitting in his office doing paperwork. It was basically a marketing job and he was expected Ooh. to expand the business customer base and that was not like in his wheelhouse at all because oh, no. of his lack of social skills. Right. He was um, most comfortable with, like, working with data, visibly uncomfortable around people. He made excuses to turn down his colleagues' invitations to join him for lunch. Instead, he carried a sandwich to work daily, ate it alone in his car with the windows rolled up, with (laughs) classical music playing loudly on the radio. What the fuck? That sounds like Erica. Don't tell her that. Don't tell her about this. She literally... Does she listen to this? Oh, no. I don't think so. Uh, On her lunch break, she literally goes in her car and she either sleeps or reads a book. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. She doesn't sit there and eat a sandwich and listen to classical music? I don't think so, no. Okay. Well, that's a good sign then. Yeah. Um, By the end of his first year with the bank, uh, they fired him for the same reasons that every other employer had. His work habits were old-fashioned, inflexible, and he was not sociable, and he couldn't tell his family like that was it he was like i can't yeah i can't tell them so um he was applying for job after job after job 
he was so ashamed to have failed that the one task that he thought like was his job as the man of the household was to provide so that was a huge blow to his ego he borrowed money from his mother to pay his bills unbeknownst to her and every day he dressed in a suit packed his lunch drove to the train station where he just sat there reading all day until it was time to go home so they thought he was going to work and he was just not doing that that's weird so he does this for six months are you kidding me after six months he's finally offered a vice president comptroller position for american photographic company in new york city it paid half the salary he had earned at the bank and within a year the company relocated and john wanted to stay in the house in westfield so he said nah and he was out of work again so then after that he accepted a position selling mutual funds from his office at home he couldn't equal his salary at the bank but it was like something Mm-hmm. Some little thing to kind of keep him afloat. Helen did not adjust her lifestyle to his now lowered income. She continued to buy expensive clothing, demand he buy expensive items for the children. John never said no to that. Just saying her sister totally called it. Her days in bed increased. She was hospitalized and her health uh, declined really fast. She ended up being diagnosed with a fatal neurological condition that resulted from syphilis which she had unknowingly contracted from her first husband and had not been treated for all these years so john had syphilis probably i mean they had kids together uh, yeah but you never know if that it doesn't always spread really mm-hmm. so jackie kennedy didn't have syphilis i don't know Anyways. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Helen's sister, Jean, told John she thought she he should consider just having her institutionalized, but he was not doing that. I don't know. Institutionalized? Move, the move of the time. Oh my god, this is what's wrong move with America. Move of the time would not happen now. Beginning in late October of 1971, John concluded that it was impossible for him to save his oldest daughter's soul from succumbing to... In his mind, her evil ways. Uh, Her hippy-dippy haircut. I said that. That's my writing. Her hippy-dippy hair. She had her hair parted right down the middle, kept it really straight, like total. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, Her hippy-dippy haircut and her desire to be an actress were just too sinful for John's liking. If John saw me right now. (laughs) If he saw us right now. Oh my god, he would roll over. He couldn't afford to make mortgage payments or otherwise support his family in uh, the way that they had learned to live and going on welfare would have been way too embarrassing for him and them, but mostly for him. Yeah. John frequently slept on a cot he had installed in the billiard room, removed from the family. So that was like his first like removal and like i'm going to figure out a way to quote fix this yeah but yes (laughs) by november he had stewed and thought and prayed and finally decided how to solve his problems he decided that the only viable solution was to kill his family he felt sure they couldn't survive without him if he left him uh they'd end up out on the streets and he couldn't let that happen suicide would have risked his immortal soul his religious upbringing taught him that like uh, i i don't i don't understand the logic here but he believed if he killed himself he would be condemned to hell but if he killed his family for these reasons which he believed were good they would be safe he, he and he would be forgiven and he could go to heaven too oh, 
He wasn't sure whether his wife and children would remember uh, that he had killed them once he met up with them again in heaven, but if they did, he knew uh, that they would understand and forgive him. This is how he justified all of it. So he tried unsuccessfully to purchase a revolver in Westfield, so he found two antique revolvers in his house, one that he inherited from his dad, and the second one that he purchased as a souvenir of his time in World War II. He bought ammo for all of them and set the execution date for November 9th. That morning, uh, the morning of November 9th, John fixed his kids' breakfast, saw them off to school. Shortly after, Helen woke up, came downstairs, and she poured a cup of coffee, uh, which she then drank at the kitchen table while she started to read the newspaper, uh, had some breakfast, and as she's doing that, he got his guns from the garage where he had stashed them, returned to the kitchen, and Point Blake shot his wife in the back of the head, killing her instantly. Holy shit. Next, he went up the stairs to his mom's apartment where he kissed her good morning. She was like, oh my gosh, did you hear that noise downstairs? He's like... I don't know. You should, I mean, check outside. Go look at the window, maybe. And so she goes and she walks towards the window and he shoots her in the head. No. Also killing her immediately. Um, But he did it, like, looking at her. Like, in the front. And this was the only one that he did that to. So keep, just ponder on that. Tell me what you think later. At Alma's age, he reasoned the shock of knowing her daughter-in-law and grandchildren were dead would have been far too stressful for her. John retrieved two sleeping bags from the basement. He laid one on the kitchen floor and then used it to drag Helen's body into the ballroom. His mother's body was too heavy for him to lift, and so later he told police that he just left it upstairs in the third floor hallway because he couldn't, like, bring her down. Then he mopped the floors, cleaned up the blood, all the brain matter at each murder site, and afterwards, this is the one of the creepiest parts to me. He decided he wanted a snack, so he fixed himself a sandwich and ate it at the table where his wife had sat when he shot her in the head. How fucked is that? He's like, man, I'm really working up I'm an hungry. appetite here. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Mom, you're too big. You're I too just... big. Maybe if I eat a sandwich, I can... Try again later. Didn't Papa eat spinach? Maybe I should eat some spinach. <laughs> Isn't that fucked? It's super fucked. So early afternoon, he get uh, he got to work preparing for the next stage of his plan, which was to get the heck out of there. He stopped uh, the mail in the milk delivery by explaining that his wife's mom was gravely ill, and he put his wife and children on a plane to North Carolina where he would drive to meet them. He called the kids' schools and patch drama class to report that they would be absent for a few weeks due to that family emergency. And then finally he drove to the bank where he withdrew all ev- everything that was in his mom's uh, account and then cashed in some bonds that she had and ended up with about two grand in cash. Pat uh, had an after-school job, but she called in because she wasn't feeling very well, and then she called John to ask him to pick her up after school instead of her going to her job so john and patty he goes and picks her up um they come back home and uh he quickly goes in the house before her she has to get like some of her books out of the car so she took a second and uh they entered the house through the laundry room and immediately he killed her as soon as she walked in he kind of hid behind the door she walks in bing bing boom kills her same way that he killed his wife fred also worked after school And after driving him home, 
John did the exact same thing um, that he did to Patty. He drove to his middle son John's soccer game, uh, watched it, and then brought him home. Um, and he tried to do the same thing to him, but something went kind of weird. He ended up accidentally shooting him like in the back instead of in the head. Um, and he that flustered him. That kind of messed with his um, his loop. So he ended up shooting John like several more times because John kept moving. And he even had to switch guns and reload. Oh my god. That's how many times he shot him. Jesus Christ. He reported that he did not regret or feel guilty for murdering his family. He said once he set his plan in motion, it he just couldn't stop it. During the late afternoon and evening, he cleaned up as much blood as he could. He moved the kids' bodies to the ballroom beside their mother, and he went around to all the photos in the house and cut out just his own face in every photo in the house. And then he turned the house-wide stereo system to a classical musical music station, um, and it played throughout the entire house. They had, like, an intercom system where all the music played. Cool. Downstairs in the billiard room, he wrote a 10-page confession and addressed it to his pastor. He turned the heat down to 50 degrees to make the bodies decompose a little bit slower, turned on all the lights in the house to suggest that the family was home, um, he fixed and ate some dinner, washed the dishes, and he went to bed, and then, um, by dawn, he woke up, made sure all those things that he had done were still good to go, and he left. He pulled out of the driveway and headed toward Kennedy Airport, where he parked in the long-term parking lot, and then from there, he took public transportation to Grand Central Station. Hmm. Even though neighbors and acquaintances wondered, like, where the Liz family had gone, I thought it was weird that they left their home, f- like, he told them that they left, but also all the lights were on, like, that was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But there was no reason for them to suspect anything was, like, to to think that there were a bunch of dead people in the house, I, I guess. Mean, there's classical music playing 24-7, like, are they not sleeping? I don't know if they can hear it outside. Oh. I don't think they I can. See. Yeah. Um, Pat's drama coach, um, what, they were close, kind of, and Pat had confided in him recently that she was afraid of John. While kids in town dared one another to walk up on the porch, and often did, um, Ed, who was the drama coach, was the only adult who was legitimately concerned to watch the list house regularly. Basically, Pat had told him, like, hey... I'm really worried that my dad's going to kill all of us. And the drama teacher was like, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah. And she said, no, no, no. If he says that we're all like, if we all get taken out of school and he says it's for some emergency and he flew us or we're going out of town, that means he fucking killed us. And he took it seriously, which is a really good thing. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good so, because you could you imagine being that kid teacher? I mean, like, holy fucking shit, it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So several times he ended up parking his car on the street near the house to see if there was like any kind of activity or movement. Finally, on December seventh, he and another one of the teachers told their drama group that they were going to the house to figure out what the heck was going on. They get there and they start looking around, and one of the neighbors calls the police on them because they're being suspicious. Thinking, yes. So, um, Ed, the drama coach, was getting ready to go inside the house, and the cops got there. 
he and his colleague introduced themselves, explained what they were doing, explained the situation, and the police officer and Ed agreed to enter the house through an unlocked dining room window. Classical music was playing loudly. They immediately detected a musty odor that seemed to be coming from the ballroom, located off the center hallway. The officer pointed his flashlight into the dark room and saw the bodies of John List's wife and three children. The kids were... Dressed in their coats and their school clothes, all the bodies were bloated, swarming with maggots, clearly having been there for a while. And by this time, the chief of police and other officers had arrived, and uh, when the drama teacher realized that John's mom was unaccounted for, officers went upstairs, third floor, found her body. Mm -hmm. So, the city and county police forces began an exhaustive investigation, but they were a month behind. So on December 9th, they were joined by the FBI. John List had been charged with interstate flight, along with, you know, murder times five. How many kids did he kill? Three. Yeah, you're right. Five. Okay. Literally the same amount as Xavier. Isn't that weird? Super weird. Yep. Um, Media coverage was national, and the FBI prepared wanted posters, which were uh, distributed throughout their countrywide network. List's confession letter was reviewed carefully for clues to his whereabouts, and everybody who knew or recognized John from Westfield and other places he had lived or worked were interviewed. So they did everything they fucking could. Every tip was run down. John List seemed to have literally disappeared from the face of the earth, and it would be 18 years before he would resurface. Dang. So, John had been a very careful man. He planned to move to Colorado. He got a social security card in the name of Robert P. Bob, he called himself Bob Clark, who was actually a dude that he um, went to school with. So he took, like, his buddy's uh, identity. And later, when this guy was like, hey, do you you remember this guy? He's like, no, not really. Like, they weren't close. (laughs) Yeah. He was, like, an admirer from afar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, this dude's cool. I like him. I'm going to be Bob. Yeah. Bob. Um... He initially lived from his modest bank account, which had the two grand that he basically took from his dead mom. And he started looking for entry-level jobs. And even though he had the credentials of an accountant, initially he didn't try and get a job in that field, which was smart. When he got to Denver, he found a place in an expensive rooming house and he bought a cheap trailer. And then he accepted a night cook's position at a Holiday Inn uh, that was across the street from where he kept his camper. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any formal training in, like, culinary arts or anything like that. Um, he had cooked at home. Uh, but he was a creative guy, observant, and he was um, able to, like, follow directions really well. Yeah. So he did really well. Uh, he began as the night cook, and eventually he was offered a sous chef position at that restaurant, and then subsequently at a country club, which is wild. By 1977, however, Bob Clark began to talk increasingly to his boss and good friend Gary about his interest in returning to his original career as an accountant, and Gary was disappointed by this, but not surprised. Same year, at a Lutheran school gathering, he met a woman named Dolores H. Miller, who was an attractive, recently divorced woman, with whom she uh, he soon fell in love. I was like, he's got a thing. He does have a recently thing. divorced women. Yes. Or widowed. Yes. She was not interested in getting married again right away, uh, but they dated pretty seriously, and Bob had formed his own lackluster 
tax consulting business. Uh, after that, he invested in a direct mail operation where he lost a lot of money. His habits were no different. He was doing the same shit that he was doing before. He was job to job. Um, and eventually he accepted an accounting position at a small firm called All Packaging, where he was promoted. Um, but the same shit was going on. 1981, the couple bought a two-bedroom condo together in the Montebello neighborhood of Denver. Uh, Dolores originally got this for herself and moved in by herself. Bob had proposed to her multiple times, continued to say no until the summer of 1985, and then they got married the following November. Uh, at first, they were happy. Um, Bob was doing well in his accounting job, and Dolores worked also. Dolores became friends with the next-door neighbor, a woman named Wanda Flannery, and Wanda was a very lively woman who was kind of a looky-loo at her neighbors and loved those juicy tabloids that you would find in the checkout stand at oh, hell yeah. uh, the grocery store. Yeah. So in 1987, she bought a copy of the Weekly World News in the supermarket that contained an article about the 1971 murder of the List family and included a photo of John List. She immediately was like, this dude looks like Bob. Mm-hmm. So she brought the article to Dolores when Bob wasn't home and was like, hey, do you think this looks like Bob? And Dolores was like, she thought it was absolutely ridiculous, tossed the the article in the mm-hmm. trash, didn't mm-hmm. show him. Wanda wanted, him, wanted her to show him the article. What an idiot. Which, that seems like it would have gone poorly, but it doesn't matter. She didn't yeah. do it. She just tossed the article in the trash. Um... Five months after they got married, Bob again lost his job. Uh, He tried getting hired on somewhere else, but it just wasn't happening, and Dolores was pissed and disappointed in him um, because she was the only one supporting them, and he was not um, super good at keeping a job still. So she told Wanda if he didn't find a new job soon, she was going to bail. Fortunately, in November, Bob got a job offer from an accounting firm in Richmond, Virginia, and they ended up moving there. He moved there first, and then she uh, moved there after they she sold the condo. The series America's Most Wanted launched on television in 1988 and was super popular. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever watched it. I think my parents might have. I'm not sure. I did not. So on a Sunday evening on May 21st of 1989, the program featured the list murders. There were no recent photos of John because he took all of them. Um, and because it had been 18 years. But the program's executive director had arranged for this sculptor from Philadelphia, a dude named Frank Bender, to produce a clay bust of John as he thought he might appear now. Mm-hmm. So he used a psychological profile, a photo of List, and photos of like his parents and all these different sources, and he created this clay bust. And it is phenomenal. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have not. No. I will show you. It was fucking uncanny. Down to the glasses. He went to, like, antique stores and Goodwills and shit. Mm -hmm. And he found a pair of glasses that he believed, based off the psychological profile, List would wear. And they were spot on. That's so crazy to me. Yes. That's so cool how psychology works anyways. Oh, yeah. So 22 million viewers saw the program, and they included Westfield investigators, Helen's sister Jean, John himself... Uh, and Wanda Flannery, who was already convinced that Bob was actually John List. 
She kept in touch with her friend Dolores and convinced her son-in-law to call America's Most Wanted and report that List was now living in Richmond as Bob Clark. Um, They provided the return address from a letter that Dolores had sent to Wanda. Bingo. Dang. So the the show forwarded that tip along with others that they had received to the FBI, who routed it to their Richmond, Virginia office. Um, A man named Agent... Kevin August, who was assigned to fugitive cases, followed up by interviewing Dolores at the home. She had not seen the TV episode, but reacted immediately when August showed her a photo of John List and asked her, like, do you think this could be your husband? She recognized the resemblance right away, but said there's no way it could be her husband, um, saying that he was the nicest man in the world. Nevertheless, evidence was mounting against him with every question that Dolores answered. Yes, he grew up in Michigan. Yes, he was an accountant. Yes, he did have a scar right behind his right ear that matched the mastoidectomy scar that John List had. Oh, God. <laughs> August felt that he had um, enough evidence to make an arrest, and after obtaining Bob's work address from his wife, he drove there, where he was met by two other agents, um, and they found Bob Clark, put him in handcuffs, and he repeatedly insisted, even after they matched his fingerprints to the crime scene, that he was Bob Clark. He was not John List, so he had, like, engulfed himself in this identity. Um, Eventually, he was extradited to New Jersey, where he was tried and convicted on five counts of first-degree murder. Since there was no death sentence in New Jersey in 1971... He got the maximum jail term, which was five consecutive life terms, which guaranteed that he would never be eligible for parole, and he died in prison. Oh. Yes. Let so, me show you. Eventually, he did end up admitting to killing his family, though, right? Um. Yes, he did, and it was horrifically lacking in uh, remorse. Yeah, because... Like, was he just trying to be like, I'm Bob, like, for a while until they were, For like, a while, and then he did some, like, interviews and stuff and kind of got off on that and was very... Did there Was there, like, a psychologist evolved? Because, like, maybe he, like, had some diso- dissociative... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. So, let me show you the bust versus the man. Holy shit, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Dang. Isn't that wild? That is wild. Yeah. That's not the pair of glasses that I was picturing. So that's crazy to me that he... It is like, just those. spot on down to the jowls. Like That is so crazy. Yep. So that is the story of John List. Wow. Wow-wee-wow. Wow. I like it. Yeah, very similar to yours. You think? Yeah. Do you not? Um, I mean, it's pretty similar. <laughs> Sorry, sleepy guy just walked in here. <laughs> he, like, stumbled. Yep. There, there we go. That makes sense. Hi, Castle. Well, I loved your story. Thanks. I liked yours. Nice. Yeah, I got some good stories today. Yeah. A lot of research. My, I just want to tell people out there that my notes for this story were longer than my notes for the Susan Powell disappearance, which... Your time for this was faster than Susan Powell. Was it really? Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think maybe it's because of Susan Powell I had engulfed myself into a lot more knowledge, and so I had a lot more sidebars. Sure. Yeah, but... Also, we're in a fort. Yeah, we built a fort. 
Yeah, a little blanket for New for, Year's. For New Year's. Cause our We're recording was... on New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day. It yeah. is currently like almost, almost 3 a.m. Mountain time. We're doing great. So good. Uh, Sammy is switching to night shift. Yeah, And I'm on night shift, so I'm fine. I don't know how you're feeling. I'm you starting feeling? to get a little tired. I think I need a meal. <gasps> creme brulee. No, a meal. You no, have creme brulee. I have creme. I'm eating my creme brulee. You can do whatever you want. Sammy asked me to make creme brulee last night and then <laughs> I didn't want to eat it. I was so sleepy. I was like, last thing I need to do is eat creme brulee, <laughs> chomp sugar into my up. teeth, and then go to bed. What, you brush your teeth after? Yeah, but I would still feel like, you know? No, I don't. Okay. I brush my teeth. I know you do, too. Oh, my gosh. I was like, people are going to think I don't brush my teeth. (laughs) I'll take that out. Thanks. (laughs) Anywho, um, this should be coming out... January 8th. January 8th. Between now and then, please... I guess that doesn't matter because you won't know anything between now and then. Because we're recording now. I I need some food, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can follow us on Instagram at WhoKnewPodcasts. We also have an email, WhoKnewPodcast666 at gmail.com. You can, if you want to support us for extra content, uh, that's who knew at on patreon and we've been collabing with one of a good like a good friend of mine an artist to create some stickers for you guys and we're getting those today they're phenomenal or soon i love she mailed them to us today they're so cool so i'm so glad that i finally actually have like a plan as to what to send to people (laughs) yeah They're, they're really cool they're so cool thanks monique yeah it's great they're they're like down to my converse Yes. They're like very it's well us. done. I'm super excited. Yeah. So follow us on all the things. Support us if you want to. Otherwise, we'll catch you next week. Yep. All right. All right. Say bye, Oliver. Oliver's here. Say bye.